So I want to read to you from Ephesians 6, verse 10, and I'm going to take it through to um, verse, we'll just read to around verse 18 in just a moment. He writes this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We'll stop there. My hope tonight is really to open up just the first few verses of this passage. Um, There's much more that we can comment on when we begin to unpack something of the meaning of the later section on the armor of God, and we're going to get there. But I want to just begin by opening up the theme and helping you understand why it is that Paul addresses these believers in this particular way. And there's much about this passage that will at first cause you to scratch your head. And as a preacher, makes you slightly recoil with a sense of inadequacy and intimidation at the theme. Therefore, I want to pray, and we're going to ask God to come and speak to us as we begin to wrestle with God's word here. Father, we're here before you as people who constantly need to be fed by you and who need the Spirit to move upon us, Lord, that we might see things with fresh eyes and receive, Lord, what you have to say. Lord, that you might strengthen us and equip us and enable us to stand for you. And so I pray, Lord, for a supernatural working of your Spirit upon us now as we wrestle with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just think about this question for a moment as we begin. Paul was an apostle who had traveled to found many churches, including the church that he's writing to here in this letter to the Ephesians. And he rarely spent much time It seems like he spent a couple years in Ephesus, but sometimes only weeks or months in a particular place. And he traveled and experienced persecution from place to place as he journeyed and as he experienced opposition, all these kinds of things. He had a hard life, in other words. He felt a great measure of responsibility. I want to ask you, what do you think it was that, amidst all the stresses of his life, would have kept him up at night? What is it that would turn over in his head as he put his head down on the pillow. You've all been there at times in your life when you felt like you're carrying burdens and certain thoughts turn over and over in your mind and prevent you from falling to sleep. What were those thoughts in the Apostle Paul's mind? And we know that some of that would have been just the daily challenges of life that he experienced. He talks about those in 2 Corinthians 11. He describes shipwrecks and and beatings and lashings by Roman whips and people opposition and persecution, all things that he experienced. And he, he starts to wrap this up. He speaks of being in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So, of course, if you ask the question, what is it that kept him up at night? Sometimes it was just bruises, hunger, and the cold, bleak nights when he was traveling from place to place. Without much, um, without much shelter. But then he adds, and this is the answer I want you to understand, he adds a final word here as he's describing his ordeals. He says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Why was he anxious for the churches? And I think the answer is because he had a shepherd's heart, a pastor's heart. And when he thought about these small gatherings of believers that he had helped found across, um, across the Roman Empire, when he thought about their vulnerability, 
that these were, these were, they were not established as churches. They hadn't been around for generations. They were brand new, new to these things. And therefore, there was a fragility and a vulnerability. As he thought about that, he knew that it wouldn't take much to wipe out, snuff out the work that he'd begun. And of course, if you ask, why were they so fragile? In his understanding and in his experience also, there is this dimension that you and I barely have begun to understand or to grapple with of the spiritual opposition, demonic opposition to the work that he was about in the world. And when you read his story in the book of Acts, you can see it quite transparently. And so Paul, as a shepherd with a shepherd's heart, a pastor with a pastor's heart, you think of a, a real shepherd or farmer with their livestock on the hillside. If there's knowledge of wild animals in, in the neighborhood, and you hear of this in some parts of the world, like in India, where they have tigers wandering around from village to village, or you have wolves in certain parts of uh, America and so on. If you are owner of livestock, that anxiety keeps you up at night. And for Paul, that was his anxiety for the churches. Will they survive? Will individuals be picked off? Will, there, will, will they be the same when I come back? Will they, be, will they survive? Will they be as strong? And this is why I think as he's closing his letter to these Ephesian Christians, you feel the urgency in what he's saying here. That what is at stake here is their very survival as individuals, as Christians, in their own walk with the Lord, but also as a congregation, as a church. That there is this great threat that surrounded them constantly that he needs to speak to and bring to their awareness so that they are prepared and equipped and resolved to fight back. Now, because we are thinking then about this particular theme of what you can call spiritual warfare or spiritual opposition or demonic oppression, that's what Paul's speaking into here. Because that is what we are unpacking, I am aware, even in my own heart, of the desire to turn away, to veer away from this particular subject. I think, though, that we would be foolish to, to dismiss it. I know that there are some people who are far, far too interested in these things. And uh, many people who seem to be, have sort of master's and PhD degrees in demonology and all the rest of it. But for the vast majority of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, certainly in our particular context, there's little to no interest or awareness of these things in our day-to-day -day life. It's almost like something that floats off there in the distance. And doesn't really impact the way you think about your walk with Jesus from day to day. Perhaps that's not true for all of you, but I suspect for many of you that will be true. And it seems to me that either way you go with that, the devil wins. If we're overly interested in these matters, then it becomes a massive distraction and a source of, of a, a bit of a detour in the Christian life. If we ignore it altogether, then we're even more vulnerable. And so we have to develop a rounded, rich understanding of this so that we are well-equipped. There's a wonderful book that many of you will have read um, by C.S. Lewis, the, the writer who was an apologist and who wrote um, the Narnia series. But he wrote a book, The Screwtape Letters, in which he kind of imagines letters written by a senior demon called Screwtape to his junior demon, whose job it is to try and prevent a young man from becoming a follower of Jesus. And then once he does become a follower of Jesus, to so work in his life so as to undo his spiritual health and walk and, and, and discipleship to Christ. And so he's offering him all this advice. And in one of his letters, he comes to this question of whether the patient, as he calls him, meaning the human, should be made aware of the, of the presence and the reality of, of demons. And he says, no, our policy... Speaking of all the demon legions, our policy that's come from on high, the orders is not to make them aware, to keep them in the dark. And one of the reasons, and one of, his, one of his strategies that he offers is this. He says, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in, in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of, of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. 
And so it is that I think many of us, when we begin to speak about the reality of spiritual forces and darkness and demons, because the first instinctive thought is to, is to see what has been so often portrayed before us in paintings and imagery and even in, in Hollywood movies, as the, the ridiculous portrayals of demons, we easily dismiss the idea altogether and prefer just to not think about it or engage with it. And that is what makes us vulnerable. Paul doesn't want us to be unaware. And so he begins, or he ends his letter by opening up this theme for them. Why does he do that? Not to induce fear. He doesn't want, if you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't want you walking around afraid of demonic activity. And I don't think that's appropriate response for a Christian to be intimidated or fearful of these things. Nor does he want to encourage, as I said, the kind of excessive interest in this stuff because it really doesn't lead to health in your Christian life. Our focus should almost exclusively be upon Jesus himself if you're a follower of Christ. It's not that you're unaware of these other things, but, but it's on Christ. And nor does he want to encourage the kind of bizarre practices, and maybe we'll talk a bit about that later, but some of the, the strange ways that Christians seek to deal with and, and engage with these realities. But what he does want to do The reason I think that he's writing in this way is in order to help you understand some of what's going on behind your daily struggles in following Christ. To put it within the context of a much greater war that's taking place around you. Let me give you an example that might help you understand what I mean here. When... The Iron Curtain fell across Europe after the Second World War, and it felt like the Northern Hemisphere was split in two between the Western nations and the Soviet bloc. There was this, what began this Cold War, this hostile competition between two great powers in developing nuclear warheads, in developing technologies, in the race to space, in increasing armament, and praise God, it never resulted in full-scale head-to-head had uh, warfare, but it was, a, it was a hostile engagement nonetheless. But it was played out in the strangest of places. One of the examples of that was that in the 1970s and 80s, the arena for the Cold War was the athletics stadiums and sporting arenas um, that, uh, where, where athletes would go to compete with international sporting events like sprints around the track. And so all these Western and African athletes and so on would be competing against these athletes from the Soviet bloc who, it wasn't known at the time, were jacked up on steroids. Because ultimately the battle wasn't just between an athlete versus an athlete. It was really representation of the might of two different opposing ideologies and systems of belief. And these people just became puppets within this much greater war that was taking place. And so if you were an athlete and you were, you were training hard, you were thinking, my struggle is just to work harder, I've got to eat better, I've got to run faster so that when I compete on that stage, I'm going to do better and beat the opposition. But you didn't know, necessarily, that you weren't just fighting another human. You were fighting an empire. You were fighting the Soviet Union. There was, there was some greater power at work behind this, this, this contest that you were involved in on this athletics track. That's an inadequate illustration, but I hope you can see what I'm trying to help you to understand here is that there is a sense in which that's true within the Christian life also, that you can look at your day-to-day struggles in a very earthly, natural lens, but you can also begin to see that there's something much bigger and much more potent at work behind some of your experiences in the Christian walk. I believe that there's a profound urgency for us to take hold of these things and re-understand them for our own daily walk with Jesus. What is it then that we have to see and begin to understand? Let me show you first of all. You have to understand the nature of the fight of faith that you're engaged in from the moment you become a believer in Jesus and perhaps even before you become a follower of Christ. Understand the nature of the fight of faith as a spiritual battle. Now, this I'm saying against the backdrop of the reality of the difficulty of following Christ. 
If you're not a Christian, I think it's incredibly important that you understand that following Jesus involves profound challenge, profound sacrifice. That it is hard and that there are seasons when it feels impossible. And Christ himself, before he invited or when he invited people to become his disciples, frequently reminded them of this fact. That following him is difficult. And that there are few who want to pay the price. He described it in the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 as entering by the narrow gate. And he said that the way is broad and the path is easy that leads to destruction. There are many who find it. But there are few, he said, who go through the narrow gate, the way being hard. The Christian life is hard. And the second that you make a confession, you become a follower of Christ, you begin to feel some of the difficulties of that in your day-to-day life. There are times when you want to give up, turn away, abandon. There are times when you feel like you're just grinding out obedience without joy. And of course, there are seasons when you feel the, the wind of God's Spirit in your sails, as it were, and there's ease and there's, there's a kind of smoothness to your journey. But then, just as soon as that has been true of you, you then experience the opposite. You feel like you're, you're pulling hard on the oars, like you're not making any ground, like you're, you're in the doldrums, as it were, drifting around. The Christian life is difficult. That's, that's a given. And I, I don't think any of you would deny that if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time. Now, if the Christian life is hard, and if many people abandon Christ as well, then one of the worst mistakes that I think we can make is to explain that dynamic on purely human or earthly terms. Think, for example, with me about the fact that so many, so many people have abandoned Christianity in our context in the UK over, over the last century or more. And so many churches of the thousands and thousands and thousands of churches have closed their doors, sold off or demolished their buildings so that there has been a widespread abandonment of Christianity. Why? Well, the Christian life is hard. And you could explain this on earthly terms, couldn't you? You could say that part of the reason why there is now this, there is intellectual querying and doubts around the veracity of Christ being the son of God who rose from the dead is because we've got we have modern education the scientific revolution that suddenly gives us all the answers we could have wanted and dispels mythology or you could say that part of the reason why Christians experienced the moral catastrophes that are so common that, that, that derail us from faith, particularly in the sexual arena, is not only because of the sexual revolution, but then because of the, the ways that technology has inflamed our ability and, and accelerated our ability to act on our desires and impulses. Or you could argue that, 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 that part of the reason why faith is so weak in our context it, that it exactly correlates with the increase in wealth in Britain after the Second World War. And the onset of globalism and, the, and all the ways in which we become, we become dizzyingly comfortable and wealthy. And of course, with that often goes a diminishing of faith. And so all these things you can say, look, these are the reasons why Christians have abandoned or why people have abandoned the church en masse and why churches are closed. And of course, there's some truth to all those things. However, you've only begun to penetrate a superficial explanation if you, if you, if you give those as the answers. Because you haven't really asked, answered the question why all these, these, these new things have set themselves in opposition to Christ. Why is it that technology seems to be in opposition to the church rather than helping the church? Why isn't it that wealth doesn't seem to bless the mission of God rather than it seems to derail Christians in their faith? You know, and so on. And the only way you can really understand what's going on is to recognize that behind all the surface dynamics of what's happening in the world, there are other powers at work. That there is a demonic presence and reality and power that opposes Christ, that opposes the church, that opposes you. This is what Paul was alert to. So in verse 11 he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There are many things he could have mentioned there, but what he chooses to mention is Satan, who leads this opposition to Christ. And then he uses these strange expressions in the next verse. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, this isn't just a human, earthy, natural, material problem. 
He says, we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, in the New Testament, these kinds of these descriptions, these names, these titles are very unusual. There's no, almost no explanation given here. And you can search the scriptures and you'll find only sporadic bits of data and information to be able to build up a picture of what he's talking about. But what seems obvious to me and to, to many is that what he's talking about here are, are the demonic legions, the spiritual powers that are arrayed in opposition to Christ and in opposition to you and in opposition to the church. With one goal, to destroy the whole thing. Now, how do you personally experience this battle? I want to make it clear that this is not about, what Paul is talking about here is nothing to do with paranormal activity. And it's not about even, I, I don't think, demonic or demonization, or what some people call uh, demon possession, like you see in, in the Gospels when Jesus has encounters with individuals who are oppressed very severely by demons. That's not what Paul has in mind here. What he's talking about is rather two very ordinary, very mundane realities. One of them being your most intimate most personal struggles and difficulties that you face each day of your life in being a follower, a faithful follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian. Or you'll struggle to believe at all if you're not. I say that because when he says here in verse 12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that word wrestle had a kind of heritage in the Greek language because it, was, it called to mind the image of the combat that they'd seen in, a, in arenas where two individuals fully naked would fight each other in the wrestling match and the goal being for one of them to pin the other to the ground with his hand on the other's neck in a chokehold. This is not a fight that's taking place out there in the ether, in the heavenlies. These are, not, these are not bizarre, paranormal events. What he's talking about here is your most intimate struggles. The things that you face each day of your life. And not just you as an individual. Because when Paul wrote, wrote this, he was, he's speaking in the plural. He's speaking to us as a church being, being attacked. And therefore, he's talking not just about the struggles you pace, face on an individual level. He's talking about the very normal ways in which churches begin to go from health to unhealth, things like factions and infighting and division and power struggles that very often happen in churches and wrong notions and ideas and teachings that come into, begin to influence people in the church. The kind of stuff that the church has been observing for the last 2,000 years that has been affecting us from, from the very beginning. So listen, here's what I'm trying to help you understand, friends. You may imagine that if there, is, there are demons doing anything, then it's somewhere else affecting someone else. But rather what Paul would say to you here is, no, you're experiencing demonic opposition and perhaps oppression every single day of your life. And every time we gather as God's people, there are forces arrayed to want to prevent and to stop and to oppose what we're doing in honoring and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to understand the nature of the fight as a spiritual fight. Which brings me to a second thought. You then have to become increasingly aware of the particular schemes and tactics that the devil uses to seek to derail and corrupt and destroy your faith. Now again... When you begin to think about what does demonic activity look like? What does it mean to experience spiritual attack? Most of us, I think, our, our minds immediately go down wrong avenues. One of those is to begin to think about spiritual warfare or demonic oppression, as I mentioned, as something in, in, involving paranormal activity or phenomena. You know, 
objects flying around the room and, and statues bleeding from their eyes or whatever you've seen in the horror films. And therefore requiring equally bizarre activities like the sprinkling of holy water and the, and the displaying of certain amulets and so on or whatever rituals or you know, counter witchcraft can be thought of in order to dispel the bizarre phenomena. The kind of stuff you see people snooping around on Channel 4 looking through castles to try and find ghosts and all the rest of it. And of course I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't weird things that happen in the world and they can't, that they don't have a demonic, a demonic origin. But most of that I think is just to distract people and get them interested in very unhealthy and unhelpful stuff. I don't think that Paul had that in mind even remotely when he's writing about spiritual warfare. Not at all. He's not talking about paranormal activity. I mean, he'd been in Ephesus, and the spiritual warfare he'd encountered was a riot. When all the statue makers who made little carved versions of of the goddess Diana began to stoke up the crowd into a riot to kill him. Now, that was not paranormal. That was very human. And it was very lethal, potentially, as well. Humans are much more dangerous than demons in that sense, the physical level, anyway. So when we're talking about spiritual warfare, we're not talking about the paranormal. Another way that I think Christians go wrong is to begin to think, well, the way we engage in spiritual warfare is, is to do battle against demonic powers in through particular ritual practices and particular methods of prayer, by binding and opposing demons and speaking to them and and professing and prophesying against them and all the rest of it. Now, you know, you may never encountered these things, and you're blessed if you haven't, but some Christians are very much into this stuff. I'll give you an example. There was, um, many of you will have seen The Lord of the Rings, right? I've never mentioned this before, have I? The Lord of the Rings, the film, the books. Anyway, in the first one, the Fellowship of the Ring, there is this extraordinary moment that just sends chills down your spine when the Fellowship, the, that, that group of nine, are fleeing a, a, a legion of orcs in the Mount of Moriah, the Mines of Moriah. And as they're running away, they eventually, um, they, they're seeking to make their escape, and behind them emerges this great demon creature, this Balrog, it's called, that emerges from the deep, released and begins to chase them and pursue them along with all the orcs. And there comes this point when Gandalf decides to take action. He turns around, he pivots as the rest of the fellowship is fleeing and he takes his staff, his wizard staff, and he smashes it on the ground and it's illuminated with this light and he begins to speak to this great demon, this Balrog, and he says, you cannot pass. I am a servant of the secret fire wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Odun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. Now, you'd have to be dead not to be moved by the beauty of the image and and all the rest of it. But strangely, many Christians have, have encountered this kind of thing and they thought, that's that's not just fantasy, that's reality. And so one example of this was in 2020 when the whole um, Black Lives Matter movement erupted globally. There was a a church that was live streaming its services, a prominent church in the United States that was live streaming its services that thought that, you know, the way we're going to deal with racism is by taking a similar act. And they they brought up a wizard staff onto the stage and the various leaders gathered around and each of them placed the hand on the staff and they all gathered in a circle and they all had to smash it on the floor and shout, no more, no more, no more. And you know, amazingly, that day racism came to an end all around the world and no one's experienced a racist incident ever since. But, you know, you see this stuff and you think, this is just bringing ridicule to the notion of spiritual warfare. And Paul had nothing like that in mind when he's writing to these believers. Let me assure you. Now, of course, prayer is involved. And there's a defiance in prayer as well. But what, rather, we need to get to grips with what he meant when he said that, 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 we, that we are being afflicted and that we must stand against the schemes of the devil. This word schemes is critical here, I think, because it makes sense of everything he's about to say about how we oppose the enemy. What does he mean? The word schemes means trickery. It means de- devious tactics and deceitful approaches. 
schemes, ways of secretly and mysteriously undermining and, and bringing about your ends. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about bizarre activity that's taking place in the heavenlies. He's not talking about any of that stuff. And this makes sense to me because in John chapter 8, when Jesus is talking about Satan, he calls him, do you remember the title he gives for him? He calls him the father of lies. Now, I don't want to begin to speculate what kind of powers Satan has or that demons have. I, I imagine that they're way beyond our, our understanding because the Bible doesn't talk about them very much. But the one thing the Bible does say about the power of demons and the power of Satan is it says that Satan has been a liar from the beginning. And that his most successful strategy to hurt you, to hurt me, to hurt God's people, to hurt humanity, has always been his ability to twist and distort truth and turn it into a lie. And if you're not sure about that, think about the, great, the two great contests in Scripture that take place between mankind and Satan. Two pillars in the biblical narrative. The one is when Adam and Eve are confronted by the serpent in the garden. A pivotal moment in our history because it leads to the fall, the entrance of sin into the world. And how does Satan accomplish it? By lying. Did God really say that you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? And you won't die when you eat it. You'll become like God. And so the ideas began to creep into the hearts of Eve and then of Adam that it's okay to disobey God and that actually God's a bit mean in withholding from us. And suddenly temptation is born and it gives birth to action and sin. Humanity plunged into darkness through, through, through a lie. The other great pillar then is when the Lord Jesus Christ arrives on the scene. Described in scripture as the second Adam. The fresh start for the human race. That where the first Adam fell, the second Adam would have to run the same trials. What happens? He's baptized in the Jordan by, the apostle, by the, John the Baptist. And then he, he's, he's led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. For what? In order to be tempted by the devil, it says in Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. And how does the devil seek to derail and destroy the work of the Son of God? By lying to him. By offering him temptations and distorting the word of God and twisting it in clever ways in order to seek to get into the mind and heart of Jesus and to derail his mission and ministry in life. But where the first Adam fell, the second Adam triumphs because he sees the lies now, friends, what I'm hopefully trying, what I'm seeking to do for you is to help see the very mundane realities behind demonic activity and spiritual warfare. That it really comes down to the things you think and believe and are led to and desire and the thoughts that occur to you that are either for Christ or against him. A number of examples that the New Testament tells us about the work of Satan then. It tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to prevent them from believing the truth of the gospel. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Satan's work is to blind you if you don't believe in Jesus and to keep you in a state of blindness where you think, I just can't see this. I don't understand it. I don't understand its relevance to me and I don't believe it. And Paul, and Paul said, listen, the reason why that's the reaction of many to Christ is because he said Satan's at work. The same schemes, tactics, lies. We're also told in the New Testament that Satan's work comes through temptation, as I've just been mentioning to you. Temptations are always lies, you know. They're always lies because they offer more than they deliver. And it's not that there isn't they don't deliver anything else. You would never fall for it twice, right? But a temptation always rooted in a lie. You can get away with this. This will satisfy you. God won't see. 
you won't suffer. We're told as we, that, that Satan's, Satan's schemes and tactics are always rooted in telling you lies, and lies in the form of temptation have derailed so many and brought them away from Christ. Another way that Satan's at work is schemes is through condemnation, another set of lies. What is condemnation? Condemnation is your inability to receive the truth that God says about you if you're a follower of Christ, that you're forgiven, that you're a saint or a holy person, that he regards you with love and affection and acceptance. That's the gospel message, that the moment you turn to him, your sin is taken away from you as far as the east is from the west, and you're no longer described in the New Testament as a sinner, but rather as a saint. And that's not to say that you don't sin, but rather that sin no longer defines you and cannot cling to you because you belong to Jesus. So the gospel message is. But Satan comes in and he begins to undermine your relationship with Christ by insinuating to you that actually... You're too bad for this. That the sins you've committed have disqualified you. That you can't get the dirt off you. That you're lesser. That you're unworthy. I know this because in in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is described as the accuser of the brothers who doesn't stop accusing them day and night. His name, Satan, means slanderer. So he sees a Christian and he slanders you and tells you that you're something worse. What does that do? Why is that such a successful strategy? Well, because if I start to believe that I'm lesser, that I'm outside of the love of God, that I'm not accepted, then I will recoil. I'll recoil from God's people. I'll recoil from God himself. And eventually it might derail and shipwreck my entire faith. Condemnation has destroyed the faith of many. So that when you sin, of course you should experience conviction. The Holy Spirit comes in. You feel your conscience softened. You know you have to get right with God. But that can go one of two ways. You either run to him and experience renewal and grace and love and forgiveness. Or you turn away. You shrink away in condemnation. Where does that come from? Well, that's demonic activity in your life, friend. Blindness, temptation, condemnation. The New Testament also tells us that Satan wants to distort our faith in terms of just what we believe, the doctrines that we believe. You see this, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11. When Paul, let me just find the verse here for you. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There is nothing more potent in all the universe than the pure, unalloyed gospel of Jesus. And when it is carried in our hearts and in our confession and in our church, we become a holy, godly, mighty people. So how does Satan want to undo and undermine that? Well, he wants to distract, distort pervert the gospel. Paul encountered this stuff all the time. It was what he was constantly dealing with. No, this is the gospel. This is the standard. This is what Christ has done for you. Let's not veer off into licentiousness and thinking that we can just sin with no repercussions or legalism in which we think we have to earn our salvation or any other distortion. Satan is behind that stuff. One last example here, by the way, is when we're divided amongst ourselves. We saw this in Ephesians 4 when Paul said, he said in that passage, but let me just find again the verse, Ephesians 4, 27. He said, or verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. How could, how could Satan destroy churches? Well, it's easy. Just cause people to fall out with each other and then sit in their bitterness and their anger so that they don't forgive each other. And eventually, they'll go their separate ways. All of us have met Christians or been those Christians who've been divided against other Christians and not wanted to worship with them in the same church family anymore. 
course, enough of that happens and whole churches fall apart. This is not theory. I've seen it. It's the same strategy. You see what I'm saying? The, the kinds of strategies that the New Testament, the schemes the Bible tells us that the devil employs to destroy us are not bizarre, strange things that happen in outer space. They are your daily struggles, the temptations you face, the condemnation you, that you want to get rid of, the divisions that come in your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. All of this, I think, has demonic interest and origins. It's not that there aren't other powers at work, yourself and myself included. We're part of that. But Satan's stoking and aggravating and wanting to encourage all of that. Which brings me to my final thought, friends. When you see this, as Paul saw it with perfect clarity and experienced it and knew what this battle was about, when you see it, what he's seeking to put within us is the resolve that we are called to now stand up and fight back. In other words, he wants to... He wants to Stop you from being passive to these attacks of Satan, but rather to understand that you can stand up and fight back. Now, it seems to me that this is exactly where Christians have failed. And I want to just, again, think about the broader picture. It is a tragic reality that Christianity in our context in the United Kingdom, perhaps also more generally in the Western world, has seen a horrendous demise over the last century or so. And that our efforts at mission have diminished and the numbers of people in churches have shrunk and there, have been, there are less churches and they're closing down everywhere. And of course, there are pockets of life here then. God honors and blesses where he sees faithfulness. But for the most part, that is not the story, friends. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to me to think of how much we have squandered our heritage and inheritance as, as believers in our context. And what's left is very often a weakened, pale, anemic version of Christianity where Christians are basically apologizing for these ancient ideas and doctrines, the wrath of God, the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his anger against sin, but also the fact that he can offer cleansing through repentance and the, the application of the blood of Jesus to offer you eternal life. We're apologizing for these ideas because we think no one wants to believe this stuff anymore. And if we just, if we just downplay the stuff that's a bit awkward, maybe people will become Christians and they'll come and join our churches again. And so we find ourselves adapting to the present age, desperate, desperate to see pews filled once more. And to appeal to a younger generation and see them come and join. And what we end up being like is essentially, you know, if, if the church is called to be a mighty army with banners, we look more like an army that has turned tail and fleeing, running away from anything like a confrontation or a fight over the things that really matter. Or another analogy might be that the church has come more and more to resemble an aging prostitute who as she loses her attractiveness and natural appeal just daubs herself with more and more grotesque makeup in order to desperately appeal to her clients or customers. And there's tragedy in that. And there are demonic origins to that, in my view. You ask, how did this happen? How did, how did Christianity become so weak and experience such demise in our in our, in our context, and the answer is, it's not to do with the modern world. It's not the fact that so much has changed in the modern world that caused the downfall of Christianity. It's not the, the influence of technology. It's not the sexual revolution, and it's not globalism, and it's not any other thing that you can point to in the modern world that has caused this to happen. Because none of that really is new. Humans have always been perverted and done weird things and, and jumped on latest bandwagons and all the rest of it. Rather, the problem is something that's very old. The same schemes, the same strategies, demonic heresies to corrupt and distort the, the truth. The real reason churches are empty is because we lost the gospel, friends. 
that you can go through the doors of many churches and they'll talk about anything except the gospel. Talk about inclusion. Talk about, about climate change. Talk about any number of things except the thing which you most desperately need to hear, which is how you can be made right with God. The same demonic temptations. You know, the world in which Paul preached was a sexually perverted world to the degree that it would shock us now. I'm talking about Roman men who could basically sleep with whoever and whatever they wanted with no accountability. Even today we find that a bit grotesque, don't we? Case in point, Spanish FIFA man kissing football player. The Romans would be like, well, of course, he can do a lot more to her if he wants to. Demonic. It's always been demonic, the temptations we face. Demonic blindness. You know, when Paul went from place, you think that people are too sophisticated and too modern and too educated to receive the gospel. Well, at least today people give you a polite ear. When Paul went from place to place, he was literally beaten to a pulp. People were so angry, so incensed, so livid that he would dare to proclaim the Lordship, the Emperor Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And who was most angry of all? Well, Satan and his legions. It's the same old problems, friends. It's the same demonic powers. There is nothing new in this world. And if you want to be part of a generation that sees a change, then it's time to fight back. Now, this applies to you, by the way, if you're not a Christian. Because as I've been saying to you, we're told in in numerous places in the New Testament that part of the reason why people don't see Christ and believe in him and understand the gospel and receive it is because of the blindness. It's described as a veil over your eyes. I think it's important you understand that there's a spiritual dimension in your ability, your capacity to accept the truth. Think of it like this. You know, when I have occasionally switched on the news or seen clips online of civilians, ordinary people in modern-day Russia talking about the war, the conflict with Ukraine, and offering support to their government, justifying its reasons, speaking about how how much Ukraine deserved to be invaded and how much um, they hoped that Putin would triumph. You look at it in dismay and you just shake your head and think, how, how is this possible? How, how can people be so blind? And part of you thinks, well, maybe they're just saying this for the cameras because they don't want to get blown up or poisoned or whatever else can happen. But then you also think, no, lots of people believe this. How can they believe it? And the answer isn't that mysterious because this is all they hear all the time on news, on, online. It's filtered, it's censored. There's only one message that's allowed. And unfortunately, we're not as clever as we think we are. And our ability to see and discern truth is limited. And it seems that that's a good analogy for what the scriptures say is true of those who are outside the church. That you are under an authoritarian regime that will use any and every trick in the book to distort the truth and prevent you from hearing it and understanding it and receiving it. Now if that, you know, you don't have to agree with me on this, but listen, what I'm trying to help you understand is that your engagement with Christianity is not just about you intellectually engaging, that there's a spiritual dimension to this. And I want you to engage with it intellectually. And I hope that you have long conversations and you read good books and you come on the SALT course and have all your questions on the table to discuss and debate. I hope you do take that approach. I think that Jesus is worthy of that degree of engagement. But friend, understand this also. There must come a point, I believe, when the Holy Spirit opens your heart. And you can ask for that. I think the Bible shows us that whenever someone sincerely asked Jesus for help to see, he would never, he would never turn away from you. He wants you to see. And anyone who is a genuine seeker of Christ, 
He'll give the gift. He'll be able, he'll reveal himself to you. Just ask him. Say, Lord, I don't see it yet. If you're real, show yourself to me. Now, let me close by just showing you what I think is the, the center of this message. And hopefully we'll begin to engage with this some more next week. But for us as Christians, how do we fight back? Three things. Number one, grow stronger in Christ. He says, verse 10, finally, which can also be translated from now on. He's seeking to, 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 to stir up resolve in you. From now on, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The way that he expresses that is that he puts responsibility on you that there are things you must do to grow stronger in your faith. Are you weak in your Christian faith? Maybe you've called yourself a Christian for years. Maybe you're relatively new to the faith. But either way, you look at yourself and say, I'm not really a great Christian. You know, I don't really pray. I don't really know how to read the Bible. And as much as I would like to do those things or to engage with God, or have a real relationship with him, I've got to be honest and just say, I don't at the moment. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a weak Christian. If any of you would say that's true of yourself, can I ask you a question? Has it ever occurred to you that you don't have to stay there? That for as long as you stay in that passivity, there's a chance that you won't make it. And what Paul says here is be strong in the Lord. He's saying take action. Stand up. He's using the language, really, military language in all this passage. And he's speaking here about, I think, the image really is getting into training. If you were to join boot camp, you know, it wouldn't be pleasant. But you would be told by a sergeant major to do a certain number of press-ups every day, a certain number of hill runs, and all of it to toughen you up and strengthen you and prepare you for the fight. And although I don't think the Christian life can be reduced to that, not, not remotely. Paul doesn't shy away in his letters from strong exhortations to buck up, to exercise discipline, to, to obey Jesus, to grow, to feed on his word, to engage with him in prayer, to, to call out to him for more of his Holy Spirit. Has it occurred to you that you don't have to remain in weakness? Not least because the strength that is available to you is the strength, as he puts it, that's in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You have unlimited power available to you in Christ to grow if you desire it. So be stronger. Be stronger. The second exhortation is put on your armor. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I think there's a lot we can say about the armor of God and hopefully we'll understand more as we unpack this passage on future Sundays. But at its essence, the imagery speaks of God equipping you for the battle. And that's important because so many of you have faced problems that feel to you to be totally intractable. A complete absence of joy in your walk with Jesus. A specific temptation that seems to result in persistent failure. Or any number of other things that seems to inhibit you on that you can't find an answer to, or you don't seem to be able to overcome so that you can grow. And the imagery of the armor is saying, no, God can and will give you everything that you need in order to be able to stand. That hasn't always been true in human armies, has it? You think of the First World War and how so many millions of men were sent to climb out of trenches and run across no man's land towards machine guns carrying nothing but rifles with bayonets so that they were mowed down by the spray of bullets. 
Do you think God calls you into his kingdom to send you like fodder over the top of the trenches? Absolutely not. When God calls you into his kingdom, he wants to equip you and arm you and clothe you with the things necessary for you to be able to actually survive. That's the message of the armor. You have everything you need in Christ. So don't give up, friend. If you feel like you've met an intractable problem, a wall that you can't get through, a barrier that you can't overcome, please don't give up. What you, have is, what you need is available for you in Christ and in the gospel more specifically. Don't give up hope. Grow stronger. Put on your armor. And here's the last thing. Take a stand. This is what he keeps saying to these believers. He says it in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That word is the kind of word you would use when you're the you're the army that's still standing on the battlefield when all is done. And having done all to stand firm, he says. Stand, therefore, he says, having fastened on the belt of truth and so on. You know, there is so much often bordering on triumphalism in, in, in Christianity in the way we, th- we talk and speak. You know, you see mission, the mission statements of churches that talk about um, advancing the kingdom. And as far as I can tell in the New Testament, there's very little talk of Christians advancing anything. It's Christ who advances the kingdom. It's the Holy Spirit who moves in this world to bring about the glory of the Son. But what we are called to do as God's people is stand. To stand firm in the things that we believe. To withstand against the particular battles and temptations and lies and confusion that afflict us, to be faithful in worshiping with God's people, in being a community of disciples, to be dogged in these things, to be gritty, to be determined, to be unwilling to let go and to give up. Because whatever else comes in this world, we know what the truth is and we're not going to back down. That's the kind of image that Paul's using here. Stand. Stand up. Here's a wonderful encouragement to finish on. In Peter's letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, he warns us that we should be watchful because the adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to destroy you. So when you give way to that particular sin, he sees it as an opportunity to destroy your faith entirely or when you feel division between yourself and a believer or yourself and your pastor or pastors and elders maybe they'll take you away from church for good or when you experience some confusion because you watched a weird youtube video about someone who was explaining away some dimension of your faith you, you think well maybe there's some truth to that and you know youtube is always a reliable source of information and so the devil he's prowling around he's he's like a roaring lion he's looking for just any and every opportunity to destroy your faith and you and others with you and ultimately the church that's what he's up to and what does he say resist him Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's great comfort in knowing solidarity that your struggles are not unique to you. Everyone in this room struggles with the same or similar things. And around the world, you'll find someone who's going through the same stuff you are, friends. He says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ is our deliverer. And in that gritty, determined, reliant posture of calling out to God in order to be able to continue to stand, when you feel like you can't anymore, there's this promise that comes, I will deliver you. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to come to your side. I'm with you. My prayer for you, friends, is may God awaken within you holy conviction 
that results in a kind of holy aggression and violence to wage war. And to enable you to be stronger in your faith. Will you bow your heads with me? I want to pray.